Hey everyone, welcome to Hub City Church. We are ordinary people following an extraordinary God together. If you want more information about Hub City Church, find us online at thehubcitychurch.com connect and fill out our digital connect card. Now let's dive into this week's message. Wow. Good morning. Good to be with you guys this morning. Um, so my family and I was thinking about this um, passage. We're going to be in Titus and um, talking a little bit about leadership, but really also talking about hope. And as I was thinking about leadership, um, I started remembering um, about, so right now, my family, we just finished what I like to call the football zone. And so the football zone is a time where your schedule is completely taken over with games and practices. You guys are nodding, yes. And water is being chugged by the gallons. And my car smells like something died in it. Can anyone relate to that? I'm like, how? How does it smell that bad? Those pads are the worst. Um, but my husband, John, he currently coaches at Oak Harbor High School. He's one of the coaches. And my son, Benjamin, um, is a sophomore player. And so they have these whole conversations using words that I like. I just pretend to understand. I'm like, oh, yeah. They're like O-line and H-back and safety and snap your hips and move your feet. And my favorite are pancaked. Dude, I was pancaked and trucked. I'm like, wow, that sounds very violent. (laughs) Um, But... Um, I used to, I'm not brand new to the game of football. I used to actually watch it with my dad, but there was a strategy involved. I'd watch it with my dad um, on Sunday afternoons because then I could go to school and talk to the guys about it. I'd be like, oh, yeah. Actually, it was California, so I was a 49er fan at the time. Um, I know, right? But it was the good years. It was like Joe Montana and Steve Young and Jerry Rice. Man, that was good years to be a fan of of the 49ers. Um, And it paid off because one year we had Powder Puff football for Spirit Week, and I got picked to play Powder Puff. I was very good at it. Um, But really, I didn't fully understand the culture of football. Do you know there's a whole culture to football? Um, until our kids, my husband John was like, the boys, so I'm talking about our two youngest boys. So we have an oldest boy, two girls, and then the two younger boys. He's like, I think it's time for them to play youth football. So we start youth football, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen, but you know, like the youngest group, the little five and six-year-olds, they're running out there, and they look like little bobbleheads because their, fo- their helmets are so big, and they're just like rolling all the time like little cubs. Um, and then you hear the football coaches on the field like, is that your mama carrying those pads? Get over here, start running. Your mama doesn't carry your pads. And the boys are like running everywhere. Um, and I'm watching all of this and I'm just like, wow, this is kind of intense. And then some of the, I'm like, I think some of the coaches actually think they're going to war because they like (laughs) gather these like grown men, you know, they gather these little kids up and they're like, we're going to destroy the enemy. I was like, wow. Or play our best. (laughs) So you really begin to discover who your son's coach is in the way that they're leading your kids, right? In the way that they're influencing them, in the way that they even are teaching them the culture of football. 
um, and what they're teaching them about football. Um, but more than that, they have great influence on our kids as they're teaching them. And also, we have great influence on the people around us. And so we're going to move into Titus, and it does talk about leadership, but I want us, as we hear that, to be thinking about where are the places in my life that I influence? Um, where are the places in my life that I lead? Because um, all of us have a place of influence in our lives. And we are all influencing other people. We're influencing the culture that we're a part of. We're influencing the environments that we're in, um, in an impactful way. And so sometimes it's really good for us to stop and uh, take a minute to think through, how am I influencing, how am I impacting the culture and the places and the people that um, I come in contact with? I think it's perfect for um, baby dedication, right? Because we see the beginnings of how um, parents are stepping into, they have already created the foundations of family culture. Just with the, their babies being two months old, they have already established some pretty big things about their family culture. And it happened day after day, hour after hour, in the middle of the night, how they were responding, what they were doing. They're actually also creating this whole culture with their extended family, right? Grandparents and friends and aunts and uncles, they're already establishing creating culture. So we are all a part of that. So this morning, we're going to look at Titus 1, and um, we're going to learn about courageous leadership and hope in a really intense culture on the island of Crete. Are you guys ready for that? Okay, so the book of Titus, it's a letter from Paul. He's writing it to Titus um, as he was given the job to restore order to like what we would call a network of house churches on Crete. So Crete is a large island off of the coast of Greece. And the culture there in Crete was notorious for treachery and greed. It would make such a good movie, you guys. You could see it. It's foggy. I just feel like it should be foggy. I don't know. It, I live on an island. I should know. I don't know. Um, but most of the men there were mercenaries, and so they would use their violent skills for the highest bidder. But it was a strategic harbor because it serviced cities from all over. So from Paul's point of view, he's like, this is a great place for a network of church houses, right? This is a great place to influence and to get the gospel out to so many people. So um, he began the work of that. But somehow, these churches had come under the influence of some corrupt Cretan leaders who said that they were Christians, but they were really um, taking these the culture of these house churches and turning them astray. And so Paul assigned Titus to set things straight, and this is the letter, Titus is the letter of Paul giving instructions about how to do that. So we're going to look at Titus 1, 1 through 3. So Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. 
So right off the bat here, we see that Paul is actually giving a really great summary of the gospel. Paul's message as an apostle is about the hope of eternal life, that the life of new creation that is available starting now through Jesus, the Messiah. So this hope was promised long ago when God, from God, who does not lie. So that is emphasized for a reason, because the culture there, there's a problem in the Cretan churches, is that they had assimilated their ideas of what Christians um, should do and who the Christian God is with Greek gods that they had grown up with. So that was pretty prevalent in the place that they grew up, right? And especially so, particularly Zeus. And so actually their claim to fame on that island was that Zeus was born on their island. And then they loved to tell all of these stories and myths about how he seduced women and would lie to get his way. They're actually proud of these myths. This is who we are from this island. Well, Paul wants to be very clear that the God revealed through Jesus is totally different. He's not talking about Zeus here. It's, he's totally different. His basic character traits are faithfulness and truth. And so the Christian way of life will be about truth, not deceiving, not using violence, not being unfaithful, but it's going to be about truth, which is going to be a huge culture shift for the Cretans. So Titus has two tasks. One, he is supposed to appoint new leaders. So Titus 1.5 says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And it goes on to say in verses six through nine, Paul describes a team of elders. What the kind of people that he is thinking for Titus to be looking for to appoint to basically be church leaders in these churches that they had. Um, mature husbands or fathers whose way of life is different from the Cretan culture. Um, they, they would be known for faithfulness. They would have integrity. They would have total devotion to Jesus. They would have self-control. They would have generosity both in their families and in the community at large. They would be generous. They also needed to be able to teach the good news about Jesus, the truth about Jesus. And they were going to need to replace the corrupt leaders who were going to need to be confronted. So as we see in verse 10 through 16, for there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. Has your household ever been disrupted by something that your, that your kids learned, that people you know were learning, that was disruptive to the truth of what you were trying to teach them? They were disrupting whole households. And that, for the sake, they were doing it for dishonest gain. They were using their influence. They were saying what people wanted to hear in order to gain influence, in order to gain power, and even in order to, they would get money from these groups of people. One of Crete's own prophets had said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. 
This saying is true. This is Paul repeating. He's using their own quote. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but their actions, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Paul. Paul doesn't pull any punches, does he? <laughs> He's pretty clear. Paul lives by the, the, the saying, clear is kind. Paul's pretty straight up. So um, he's talking very strongly because when he talks about the group of those of the circumcisions, this group is, they're actually ethnically Jewish Cretans. So they're from the island of Crete. They're ethnically Jewish um, who said that they follow Jesus, but similar to the problems in, like we've heard about other places, Galatia, um, these people were putting demands on non-Jewish Christians. So they were like, we're ethnically Jewish, and so therefore, we are better than you, and here's what you have to do in order to be equal with us. So, um, so they were saying, non-Jewish Christians, you guys have to be circumcised, and, and you have to follow all the laws of the Torah if they really wanted to be followers of Jesus. So there was this whole bias and pride that they were putting on other Christians in their area. And Paul didn't agree. He said that they were obsessed with Jewish myths and human commands and that they are just in church leadership to make money. Ouch. These leaders claim to know God, but their Cretan way of life denies him. We have to watch when we're claiming to know God what we're actually doing. When people see the things that we say and do, Will it point to Jesus? Or have we gotten caught up in the culture in which we swim? Have some, has there been something in us that has gotten corrupted? Has there been some train of thought that we have been sitting in that has started to take us off track? And are we influencing other people in that way? Or are we influencing people with the truth of who God is? I also think that Crete sounds an awful lot like our current culture. Violence, deceit, low moral standards, leaders claiming to know God, but their lifestyle denies him. So I have a few observations from these verses that we read. I was thinking about Timothy being there, and I think maybe God has allowed us to live in our Crete so our culture, maybe there is a purpose for that. Sometimes God puts us in a particularly difficult position because he knows that's where we are most needed. God puts the Christian in Crete because he knows Crete needs the Christian. Paul says to, to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order. But Christians can get it wrong. 
And they can think that God has given them a mission and a free license to work it out in the world as they see fit. Maybe we can see that currently. Not unlike the ethnically Jewish Christians who, instead of helping people find and follow Jesus, they create barriers based on their own biases and pride. Tim Dearborn says, The God of mission has given his church to the world. It is not the church of God that has a mission in the world, but the God of mission who has a church in the world. We are privileged and invited to participate in what God is already doing. God is already in and amongst us. He is already at work in our culture. He is already ahead and behind and through all the things that are going on, and he is inviting us to step into those those things. It's a critical hour, and we need leaders who choose to be missional, who will see the culture through the eyes of God, who will have a perspective of the people that they're in the lives of with the eyes of God. Um, I think through this, and I think, um, is there a time, do I do that? Do I um, have bias and pride when I'm influencing someone? Uh, When I hear about somebody um, having a value that's different than mine, when I hear about someone um, in in working out their faith, they've come to a different conclusion than I have come to. And do I want to kind of put this bias, well you're not quite there yet. Um, I'm like, yikes, it is in me, but I do think it's in all of us because I think it's really attached to our human nature, right? There's this thing in us that comes out when we are working through that. Um, A funny example is um, one of my daughter, Alyssa. She's right in the middle of all the kids, and she was probably five or six, and... um, she was in the back of the car, and she, each of the kids kind of had their own process of coming to ask Jesus to be in charge of their lives. They all kind of did it in different ways. Well, Alyssa struggled because she's like, I'm good, I'm not bad, you know, because she deeply wanted to be good, right? And she was kind of my little people pleaser, right? And for the most part, she was good. I mean, she, you barely had to correct her. You only kind of subtly had to, like, give her an eye, and she'd like, you know. So she really wrestled with being a sinner, She's like, I, don't, I think I'm just good. Well, so finally, we're in the car, and I think two out of the five accepted Jesus while we're in the car. I don't know what it is about that, but um, she's in the car, and she's back there talking, and she's like, Mom, Mom, I want Jesus to be in charge of my life. I want to ask for forgiveness. And I'm like, okay, honey, you can. You know, I'm like driving minivan. She's in the back of the minivan, right? My son, Nicholas, is sitting next to me. He's the oldest. And so she's back there, and she's like, Jesus, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for being bad. Forgive me. Like this whole little song. She whole, and Nicholas is looking at me and he's like, that's not right. She's not doing it right. I'm like, I mean, I think it's right. It's an honest response to God, right? And, I mean, this is a happy little song. Like, she had this whole happy salvation song. It was just great. 
But um, she's not doing it right. You know, you got to bow your head and close your eyes and all the things, right? And it's just a funny example, but how I think that we actually pick up that stuff. We actually pick up the, the way in which to do things, and then we put it on other people as if that is the truth. But we have to separate. We have to discern what actually is the truth and what actually is just our way of doing things or what is our culture. We have to discern those two things because I do think that with the people that you influence in your life, look, we have Thanksgiving coming up and Christmas, and I don't know about you, but I am more engaged with extended family and other people during this time of the year, and it's challenging. It can be really challenging. Um, And how do I want to see them? How do I want to influence them? Do I want to put on them? Do I want to dread again? Oh, when they come, they're going to talk about this. They're going to talk about politics, and they're going to talk about how they feel about that, and it's, it's different than how I feel. And how do I want to approach that? Do I want to step into this next season thinking, you know, I'm going to shore myself up, I'm going to have my facts right? Or do I want to say, I don't know, how do I love them like Jesus does? Maybe my way of doing things isn't the only way of doing things. Maybe I'm imposing a bias. Maybe I'm imposing just a way of doing things that's not actually the truth. What is the truth? Sometimes God allows us to live in Crete um, for a process. So sometimes for a purpose, sometimes for a process. In Philippians 2, it talks about how Jesus took on the nature of a servant for the benefit of others. By the way, all leadership is, is serving others. And so from this humble mindset, he shows us how to love others, not transactionally, like I'll give you this if you give me that, but in a way that's transformational, like it changes us. The way that Jesus loves us changes us. And it equips us. So um, Jesus refused to use his God-given position for personal gain. Are there places in our life that we have some authority? Are there places in our life that we have some influence? Are we using those for personal gain? Or is there something that we can do to leverage that for the benefit of others? What kind of power and control do we have? Power and control is not bad, but are we using it in a way to leverage it for the benefit of others? How are we using our time, our energy, our resources? Is there another step we can take in leveraging that for the benefit of others in the way that Jesus gave us everything in order for us to know him? Can we take another step? So sometimes God allows us to live in Crete for process. When things are hard around us, it really stirs a lot of that up. And also it can stir up this whole kind of um, scarcity mentality. I think when I feel less generous, when I feel less naturally generous, it's because I'm, I feel anxious about something. I feel like I don't have enough. I feel like, how can you ask me to do that? Do you see how I am struggling? How am I supposed to give any more? I'm empty, right? 
And I think that is the place, actually, that sometimes we're in difficult situations so that we get to that place and we do say, God, I'm empty. Because that's the place that he gets to fill us, right? And then what we're giving to people isn't just our own stuff. What we're giving to people is this pure love. We're actually giving people what they need. He works through us in that place. So sometimes we're in Crete for a purpose because he has planted you in the places that you are. He has given you those places of influence for a purpose. Only you can do the things that he is asking you to do in those places. Sometimes he puts us there for our own process, right? Getting us to this place of emptiness so that we will allow him to flow through us. And then sometimes God allows us to live in Crete to fulfill his promise. At the beginning of this passage, Paul reminds us that we have hope in eternal life. We have hope in eternal life. And by hope, Paul's not talking about a wish. We often use the word hope like this. I hope it doesn't snow this week. It's not going to, is it? It's not. No, good. Okay. Um, I hope the Seahawks win. We often use hope for our thin wishes about an uncertain and even unlikely future, which, I mean, they're doing pretty good right now. I don't know. I don't know if you guys are Seahawks fans. But But this isn't how Paul uses the word hope here. It's not a wish about the uncertain. This is actually a well-founded faith with a future orientation. This is a knowledge of the truth looking forward. And how do we know that Paul has such a strong, solid, objective, powerful, life-changing concept of hope in mind? How do we know this? Because it said, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. This hope that catalyzes our Christian faith, like puts us into, act, into action. Because if we don't have hope, we're gonna batten down the hatches. If we don't have hope that God's gonna show up and that he's gonna fill us and that he's gonna do something and he's gonna do something beyond us, we don't move into action. We don't get on mission. We don't walk in the purpose of what we're called to do. If we don't have hope, we are not catalyzed onto mission. Instead, What happens is we start to believe what our culture says. Our culture actually says to be cynical. Boy, it's really bad out there. It's getting worse. Have you seen how bad it is? It's way worse. These things are going to happen. Oh, these terrible things are happening, right? So those things may be true, yes. Both things are true. Yes, there is pain in our world. There is incredible damage going on in our world. There is brokenness in our world. That is true. But also, there is hope. And we have a God who sent his son to save us. But also, we have a hope that we can depend on because it comes from a God who does not lie. That from the beginning of time, he is who he said he is. He has done what he said he would do. We have hope. Cynicism just breeds disengagement. 
If you're pretty cynical about something, you start to draw in. You're like, why should I keep trying? Why should I show up at these community things? Why should I send my kids into that? Why should I join these groups, right? Cynicism breeds disengagement. We want to bring it in. We want to disconnect. We want to hunker in, and we become very small. And that is the plan of our enemy, make us small so that we do not step out in faith, so that we do not do the mission that we are called to, so that we don't fulfill the purpose we were created to do. He wants to make you small, but hope actually makes us big. What about the courage of Paul to plant house churches in the culture that was treacherous and terrible because he knew it was a gateway to so many people discovering the hope and love of Jesus. There are people all around us in this community, in my community, in the world, that don't know that this is true. And they are lost and broken in the world that they believe is ending. They have no hope. And God has put it in each of us. It can't be just one or two of us. It has to be all of us. We have to all step out with hope. When we experience violence and tragedy in our world, we want to batten down the hatches. We want to ramp up security for our loved ones. I get it. I get it. I have a very intense mama bear. I don't know if you could tell. Um, and then we get cynical because this world can be a terrible place. But God, but God so loved the world that instead of cutting himself off from us, he did the unthinkable. He gave his own son to answer for the penalty of death. The Prince of Peace, the light of this world. Do we need light in this world today? Love incarnate was crushed by the sin and shame and violence and evil of this world. God sent his son, his son. He was despised and rejected. But don't forget. Please don't forget that hope wins. That is not the end of the story. Jesus conquered sin and death. He came back to life and has given us his spirit. As we wrestle with the pain and loss and needless violence in this world, we can't stop there because Jesus didn't stop there. God doesn't stop there. He's still on a mission today, you guys. He is not done. He is on a mission to seek and save that which is lost. Amen? So how can we do that? How can we be leaders of hope in this world? How can we influence the people that we're around? Maybe God is calling us to step into engagement. Maybe we've drawn back. And maybe this is a season where God is asking you, it's time for you to step back in. It's time for you to step in 
and engage with the people around you. Engage with the families around you. Engage with your community. Engage with your church family. Maybe God is asking us to step back in. How can we be leaders who find satisfaction and fulfillment in our marriages? Have we gotten cynical in our relationships? Has there something deep in us stirring, saying, this is about as good as it's going to get? It's never going to be any better. How can we be leaders who cultivate homes that create security and belonging and identity for our kids? It's because of what we believe. We believe that this world is messed up in many ways and that there's a lot to be critical of. And better yet, we believe that the story doesn't end there. Amen? We believe in redemption. We believe in change. We believe in grace. We believe in Jesus. We have hope, genuine hope. We reject cynicism. We have hope. God revealed through Jesus. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you want to take your next step in following Jesus, fill out the digital connect card at thehubcitychurch.com slash connect. We'd love to celebrate what Jesus is doing in your life.